This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We're all equally loved in Christ. We are the beloved of God, but we're not all equally approved. And we want God's approval in terms of our usability, and that is in direct relation to our ability to accurately handle the word of truth. And that's why we have the Bible line every week here Tuesdays at 11 o'clock, live streaming across the nation. And for those of you that have questions this morning, you can call us directly at the 843 South Carolina Exchange. That's simply... 525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is tbl for the Bible line at wagp.net. We get a lot of questions that way, and if you do call, we give priority to live callers. Some don't want to go on the air live, and they simply dictate their question. We're happy to receive them that way as well. Well, Walter, it's good to be here. We're at a funeral last Tuesday, but we're back live here in the studio here on the first uh, Tuesday in May, and uh, we're ready to jump in. Indeed it is. All right. Uh, good morning, Pastor Carl. I believe we have a live caller. It is Angie. She is live with us on line one. Good morning, Angie. You are live with Pastor Carl. Thanks. Hi, Pastor Carl. I have a question, and what it pertains to is I'm asking about different scriptural-based warnings for those who may be getting caught up in this whole uh, idea of emptying your mind when you're meditating. Yes. Um, I know that the Bible says, be still and know that I am God, but I believe that kind of Buddhist Zen meditation is a danger, and I just was hoping you could give me some scriptural backing for that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And by the way, for some of our listeners, we offer a course every Sunday morning on basic discipleship. We call it the Discovery Class, and the Discovery Class is 45 weeks long, and it's on a rotating curriculum, so people can jump in any week. They could start at week 15, go 15 to 45, 1 to 14, but it's essential because it covers the rock-bottom truths of the Christian faith, and this is actually one that Angie calls in that we address uh, we have a, one of the segments that we spend usually three or four weeks in is entitled The Christian and the Bible. And uh, we look at Psalm 1 where it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates, there's the word, meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. So what is biblical meditation? It's actually the exact opposite of the problem Angie has encountered, where she's meeting people who say, well, you need to empty your mind. That's really Eastern meditation. That's a very popular form of meditation that began to show itself in the United States in the 1970s was called 
transcendental meditation, but still it's taught just in different labels and under different forms, and it basically says empty your mind. The Bible says just the opposite, fill your mind, but not with garbage that fill your mind with truth. As a man thinks in his heart, Proverbs will say, so he becomes. And so it's important that we fill our mind. And it's interesting, the Hebrew word here for meditation is actually the same word that is used to describe what a cow does. A cow uh, takes grass and he chews it and he swallows it and he vomits it back up without sounding too disgusting and he chews it some more and it goes through this uh, three stomach process and out on the other end comes beautiful white milk. But he turns it over and over and over and over. And that's really what biblical meditation is. Uh, in fact, we, we teach and train people in that class, the discovery class, how to do biblical meditation. And I have a little acrostic I developed 30 some years ago, 40 years ago, meditate. M stands for memorize. And so first you begin by memorizing the verse. And a good way to do it is to read it out loud three times, write it out three times, each time with the address. Uh, so like Psalm 1, 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So you would read it out loud three times with that address, Psalm 1-1. Then you'd write it out, and then you start the memorization process. That's a huge, huge leap. Um, most people start at step three. They just try to memorize the verse. But when you actually hear it out loud uh, by reading it, and you write it, that really accelerates your ability to memorize. And then you just take it a phrase at a time, how blessed is the man, okay, how blessed is the man. And when you can say that three times in a row without a mistake, then add a phrase until you can say the whole verse three times in a row without a mistake. Memorize, e-emphasize, emphasize key words. So you might read how blessed, how blessed, um, and you're emphasizing the word blessed. How blessed is man who does not walk? And so it causes you to just reflect a little bit in terms of what the verse is actually saying. D, define. Define key words. What does he mean by walk? Is he talking about a physical walk? Of course not. But the term walk in Scripture can refer to a person's way of life or lifestyle. So Paul says we don't walk any longer in the way of the Gentiles, in the way of pagans. We have a different walk. Um, do not be foolish, but be wise in your understanding um, and make the most of your time by walking safe, filled with the Spirit. Uh, so memorize, emphasize, define key words, individualize. Uh, that's where you take the verse and you kind of personalize it. How blessed I am, not just the man or the person, but how blessed I am. If I do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, and again, that causes you to, you're, you're thinking through, you're turning over the verse, and sometimes as you're doing that, the Spirit of God is bringing to your mind like ways that maybe you're walking in the counsel of the wicked, maybe by uh, listening to things that you shouldn't listen to, by looking at things you shouldn't look at, movies that you shouldn't spend time on. You're walking in the counsel of the wicked, and that breaks you down spiritually instead of building you up. Memorize, emphasize, define, individualize. T, think about it. Just take a moment and think about it. Uh, think about what's being said, and maybe write that verse out on a card. Put it up on your visor there. When you are at a red light, you can pull it out, and you've got 30 seconds not to look at your phone, but maybe to think about that verse uh, so T is think about it. 
meditate, apply. How does it apply to me? What does God want me to do? What truth is here that I need to apply? Apply. How blessed is the man who doesn't simply hear James will argue, but who obeys the word, that person will be blessed in all that he does, and he'll find real freedom. Very similar to Psalm 1, what James says. So memorize, emphasize, define key words. I individualize. T, think about it. A, apply. T, uh, tell others. You know, the Bible says we're to build up one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, we're to take the truth of Scripture and share it with others. And sometimes, you know, when God's word is on our heart, it just kind of overflows onto our lips and we have an opportunity to share it and build up one another. Consider how you might stimulate one another to love and good deeds and eat, just enjoy the Lord. So that's a simple way to meditate on scripture. So Angie, great question. You're right on track. It's just the opposite of what your friend is telling you. It's filling your mind with truth, with scripture, not emptying your mind in any meditation process that labels itself as Christian and, and, and encourages you empty the mind, they're obviously not in sync with Scripture. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line, our next question comes from a listener in Savannah, Georgia. They say they have been in a financial bind for over seven months. Is it wrong to pray for God to provide the needed finances? And also, does God hear the prayers of unbelievers other than the prayer of asking for salvation? Well, this person who just called from Savannah asked a great question. And there are a lot of Christians today, unfortunately, that are trapped in financial bondage. They don't really experience financial freedom because, again, once we're born again, we receive the mind of Christ. We have a new ability to think our thoughts after God's thoughts, and that's where scriptural truth or meditation, as Angie just called from Bluffton, uh, fits in. But with that said, you need to find out what the Bible says about finances. And so I have a course. It's called Financial Freedom. You can go to searchthescriptures.org. It's a course in our Institute of Biblical Studies. It's like 130 pages long but we go through what the Bible says about stewardship, what the Bible says about saving, what the Bible says about giving, what the Bible says about investing, what the Bible says about planning, what the Bible says about debt. And we take all those various biblical principles and we flesh it out into a budget. You say, well, I've never had a budget before. Well, you do. It's either a very poor one that you're doing by the seat of your pants or it's well-planned and executed and based on Scripture. So, yes, you need God's help, but God's help is going to come in conjunction with what he has revealed. If you go to a doctor and you say, look, I've got high blood pressure and I need your help, and he says, well, this is what I want you to do in the short run. Here's some pills that might help the pressure, but there's some steps you need to take in terms of diet and exercise. And, you know, they say for every so many pounds you're overweight, your blood pressure goes up five points. People debate on the exact poundage. But the fact is, is overweight people typically have a certain level of diabetes that is preventable and they have uh, high blood pressure. And so they need to lose some weight. They need to get some exercise. They need to raise their metabolism. And so if you come back to the doctor and I don't understand it, I still have this high blood pressure. Well, did you get on that walking program? I No, you didn't do any of that. So you can pray and ask God and you should 
ask God. And maybe this is an answer to your prayer. God, help me with my finances. But doing the same thing as the president of Stanford University said 40 years ago, doing the same thing over and over again while expecting to get different results is just insanity. There has to be some change that's entered into the equation, and that becomes vital. Um, And so take the course. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. You can download the outlines. You can listen to it online. And if you're married, do it as a couple so that you're on the same page. And the uh, deep pit that you got into, um, not overnight, but through a series of poor decisions, typically not structured according to Scripture, you're not going to get out of it overnight. But God will help you. He cares about the pain you're in. And the fact that you're taking a step towards him, drawing near to him, he'll draw near to you. And he might even deliver you faster than any uh, certified financial planner would tell you it will take to get out of debt. In addition, um, does God hear the prayer of an unsaved person other than calling on the Lord for salvation? Yes, he certainly can, and there's an example of it, but the promises in Scripture are in reference to the believer, and certainly anyone who will call on the, the name of the Lord, whoever means anyone, Anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But there's a man by the name of Cornelius, or Cornelius, depending whether you're British or English in your expression of his name. Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius. This is Caesarea by the sea. There's two Caesareas, a centurion of what was called a called the Italian cohort. In other words, he was a leader of some 600 men, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household, He gave many alms to the Jewish people. That is, he saw the needs of some of the poor Jews in his community, and he helped out with that, and he prayed to God continually. So he recognized that the God of Israel was the one true God. And about the ninth hour, that'd be about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, in the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision, in a vision, an angel of God who had come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers, here it is, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, was he saved? No, not yet. How do we know? Because of the testimony that uh, Peter will give in Acts 11. He comes back after this man is converted, and God works in Peter's heart. He works in Cornelius's heart, brings the two together providentially, and Uh, They're converted, and Peter's blown away because the same experience that happened to them in Pentecost is Jews happened to Gentiles. They believed Jews could—Jews believed Gentiles could be saved, but just not on the same level. And God taught Peter a big lesson that day. And in Acts 11, and he reported to us, that is the elders in Jerusalem, how he'd seen the angel standing in his—or, excuse me, and he reported to us that Cornelius— um, in his in the group that Peter came, how he had seen the angel standing in the house and saying, send a Joppa and send Simon and so on, and, <laughs> and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and your household. That means he wasn't saved before. But he was responding to everything he knows. And so sometimes God uses the prayer of an unbeliever as part of the drawing process. You know, someone has a very sick loved one and they are humbled and they seek God and God responds to their prayer and their their heart is just softened through it. 
and God is using that to draw them to himself. But does he promise to hear the prayer of an unbeliever? Well, the promise that he gives is only in reference initially to calling upon Christ in faith. But does God hear the prayer of unbelievers? Yes. In fact, the, uh, the verses that are typically quoted to say that God doesn't hear the prayer of an unbeliever are not actually verses in relationship to um, unbelievers, but believers. For instance, Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Who's he speaking to? Save people, uh, believers within the realm of Israel. That's whom he is speaking to, and he's just saying, look, if you're clinging to, holding on, cherishing sin in your heart, the Lord's going to say, first get your sin right, and then come talk to me about your need. And so, again, a a very different perspective from the way people often think. Your iniquity has made a separation between you and your God, Isaiah will write, such that he does not hear. Who is he talking to? Believers. Now, we could apply it in other realms, but it's in reference to believers. So, again, this is an important question. Uh, This is a question that's covered uh, like the first one in our course called Basic Discipleship. It's called the Discovery Class at Community Bible Church. 23 of the 45 weeks can now be heard online. And we just finished, I updated the three-page outline to a uh, full-blown, fill-in-the-blank, 32-page outline that people in the Discovery Class are working through on the subject of prayer. And so we cover this very issue in that in that handout. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859 if you have a question for the Bible line today. Our next question comes from another listener in Savannah, Georgia. They write, um, she, I'm sorry, a listener from Savannah is in a church with great preaching, but she has a check in her spirit because at the end of the service, the pastor will say something like, There are a couple of people here with back pain, or there is a person here who is having marital issues, and they will have a word for these individuals. (laughs) Is this something she should be concerned about? Should she consider leaving this church? Yeah, to me, it's just uh, hype. It's not sound biblically. Uh, It's rooted in charismatic slash Pentecostal doctrine. They take a verse that has nothing to do with what they would say if you push this pastor, on what biblical basis do you have it? And he'll say, I had a word of knowledge. God just showed me. Well, one, if somebody has somebody out here has had back pain, you almost can't go wrong, <laughs> even in a congregation of 50 or 100 people. I can almost guarantee somebody out there has a back pain. Uh, someone may be struggling with their marriage. People come today to the church, their entry level very often is a crisis in the home and typically a crisis in their marriage. So those are kind of sure and certain, oh, he, he's speaking to me, you know? And look, this is just beyond what Scripture says. Now we have an open canon of Scripture where we have words of knowledge, where God gives direct revelation. That's good Beth Morian theology where she gets these text messages and emails from God and, you know, puts it all in the first person of what God told her. That is dangerous theology. Every cult is built on that form of theology where someone has a vision, a dream, some book that goes beyond the 66 books of Scripture. Listen, we have a closed canon now. God spoke in many portions and in many ways at one point, but in this day he has spoken through his Son, and through his Son 
he completed the book through his apostles and apostle designates, and they gave us the 66 books of the Bible. And so now any truth that we have has to be measured within the canon. It's from a Latin word means a measuring rod within the canon or the measuring stick of Scripture. And if it's an addition or it subtracts from it, then we're in great danger. So it is true there was a time in the early church because the Scripture was being written where God was gave people direct revelation from heaven. But interestingly, church history records when the Bible was completed, that stopped because there was no need for it. And so, yeah, I think you're in a crummy church. I would leave. I would. I, I think it's a crummy church, and if you have children and, you know, you're, you're setting them up for disaster, oh, this is uh, typical, you know, what pastors do. And so uh, your kids leave. They go to college somewhere. Oh, this pastor does it. Not only will he do that, he may go way beyond that. And this is just like a starting point usually in wacko theology. Let's go to the next question. Good question just came in from Savannah. Our next question comes from Summer, who's um, out of Maryland. She writes, My sister is a Calvinist and I am not. We like to debate on the subject, but I am having a hard time with predestination and free will. Can you help me? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair question. So when we think of the term Calvinism, it's really a loaded term. Because most people think of it just in the realm of uh, salvation, you know, God choosing some people to go to heaven and others to go to hell. But it's much broader than that. Uh, Calvinism is a whole system of thought, and it's regulated based on God's choosing of Israel. So John Calvin, remember, was a Roman Catholic priest. He's converted out of Catholicism. And the Roman Catholic Church, by that point, for centuries had been teaching that they were now the new people of God, that God was done with the Jewish people. And it's embarrassing when you go to places like Yad Vashem, which is um, a parallel to the Holocaust Museum, but much more in-depth and much more accurate, and the U.S. tried to mimic it in Washington, D.C. And it's, it's worth a visit, the one in D.C. The one in Jerusalem is just it's incredible. But when you see all these anti-Semitic popes, in my, what a line of them, they had, who hated the Jews, who wanted to kill the Jews, destroy the Jews. Um, These are popes that have created in the minds of Jewish people that all Christians are their sway and all Christians hate them. But Calvin comes out of that, but he re-spins it, and he says, the new Israel is not the Roman Catholic Church, but the new Israel is the body of Christ made up of born-again believers. So that flavored every realm of theology. For instance, take his ecclesiology. His ecclesiology, he practices infant baptism. And a good uh, polemic for uh, rejecting infant baptism is just to read Calvin's Institutes on why he believed in infant baptism. And every time I think people read them, they think, you know, this doesn't make any sense. I think I need to go with not patio or infant, but credo or believer's baptism, uh, people who affirm a creed. Uh, that is, they've believed in Christ as their Savior. In the realm of eschatology, again, the doctrine of last things, uh, he had a distorted view. Because God was done with Israel, there's no coming kingdom. He was amillennial, that is, there's no coming kingdom for Israel. God's done with the Jewish people. Uh, It affected the way he ruled. Remember, Calvin was uh, born in France. He's persecuted by the Roman church. And so he flees to Geneva, Switzerland, where 
he set up a lot of his uh, reforms into local laws. And, of course, uh, his city became uh, a haven for other Protestant reformers who were being persecuted by the Catholic Church because they found a certain degree of uh, protection there. But he set it up like a theocracy. Look, there's only one theocracy in the history of man, and that's the theocracy that God instituted with the people of Israel, where God personally ruled over the people. There are no theocracies today. But in Calvin's mind, much like in Israel, again, because they're the new Israel, he thought that moral and civil law should be blended together. And uh, this is finding itself um, today in a new movement called Christian nationalism. And again, that's kind of a shaky term because some people mean one thing by it, other people mean something else by it. That's why I don't like to always use uh, some of these terms because uh the definition can be wide and varied, but he thought the moral and civil laws should be bled together. And so, for instance, a man uh, fled there being persecuted by the Roman church for heresy, and rightly so in the sense that uh, he was denying the doctrine of the Trinity. His, his name was Michael Servetus, and when he gets to Geneva, he continues to deny the doctrine of the Trinity. He says that Christians don't worship one God but three gods, and so, again, because this is a blasphemy, blasphemy Calvin wants him executed. Now, in Calvin's um, uh, favor, not really his favor, but just to give a side note here, he wanted him executed by the sword. The council there in Geneva wanted him burned at the stake. Calvin couldn't convince them, so they burned him at the stake. Hey, listen, is that what we should do today if we meet someone who denies the doctrine of the Trinity? We should burn them at the stake. But look, you can't blend the moral and civil law. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be Christian citizens. You should be, and you should have your voice heard. But being a Christian citizen and being salt and light is very different than combining the two institutions because now what we've done is we've created in the governmental realm uh, people who we are considering part of the priesthood. And, and again, it's just not what God has called his people to do. You cannot mix Israel with the church. They're two distinct institutions. So every realm of theology, so in his doctrine of soteriology, that is the doctrine of salvation, and that's probably the genesis of your question. Um, you know, you and your sister are having this debate over how God saves people. Again, what I would suggest for you to give an intelligent answer would be to go to searchthescriptures.org, download the app on your phone, and listen to Romans 9, 10, and 11. There's a lot of sermons I give in those three chapters. But because in Calvin's mind, God was done with the nation of Israel, he read through that lens, Romans 9, 10, and 11, very differently. And so what he saw was not God choosing the Jews out of all the nations of the world, but God choosing certain people for salvation and neglecting others for damnation. And that's not really the focus of those three chapters. The focus concerns God's choosing of Israel in chapter 9, how he elected them out of all the nations of the world because he needed an identifiable people that any thinking person could examine by which the Messiah would come. And then in chapter 10, he deals with their present-day rejection, why they were in unbelief, then in chapter 11 with their future restoration. Um, but again, even the doctrine of election, all true Christians believe because the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. 
the question you have to ask is, what do you mean by that? Again, we're defining terms, just like with Christian nationalism or you know, Zionism or other terms that are being tossed around today, even complementarianism. You know, Beth Moore said she was complementarian. She just came up with a different definition so that she could snuggle up to evangelicals and still you know, make hundreds of thousands of dollars off their ignorant backs uh, to give money to her. Um, sadly, look where she's gone. Uh, just like Andy Stanley, it's pathetic. It's really, really sad. But, you know, if people are untaught, as most evangelicals are today, they're the product of 15 or 20-minute sermons, and many of those are just fluff and stuff, and there's no real solid exegesis, people will, after a while, just believe about anything and what makes them feel good and not necessarily what is true. So, again, uh, listen to these messages because the doctrine of election is taught. The question is, how does it unfold? And I kind of walk through that very carefully. All right, 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Elena out of Acton, Massachusetts. She writes, My name is Elena, and I am 16 years old from Acton, Massachusetts. My family and I were reading the MacArthur Daily Bible, and we read a verse from Luke 1332, and in that verse, Jesus refers to Herod as a fox. But although MacArthur explains that referring to people as a fox is usually in the sense that people are crafty and worthless, but in this sense, isn't Herod a leader and shouldn't Jesus be respecting him as one, like what we are told to do in the Bible? All right, so this is a good question, and I'm assuming, Alina, that um, you're not at all questioning Jesus's action. You're just trying to understand it because obviously he's the sinless son of God and he never ever did anything wrong. So the question is, how do we understand this designation, that fox? Now remember, this is Herod Antipas. There are seven Herods that are mentioned in the Bible. Most of us at least know Herod the Great. He was the one who was involved in the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem around the birth of Christ. Uh, when he's dead, his son Herod Archelaus, who's the full brother of Herod Antipas, Herod the Great had a bunch of wives, killed some of them. I mean, this guy was just evil to the core. Well, Herod Archelaus, most of us know him. That's when Joseph is warned, hey, look, you don't need to flee to Judea. Don't go back to Bethlehem. Head to Naz- So he heads to Nazareth because uh, Herod's son now wants to dispose of of the Messiah. And so this is a, this is his uh, full brother and in um, his full brother, Herod Antipas. This is the Herod, by the way, that Jesus stood before. He stood before him. Remember in the six trials of Jesus in the fifth trial, he stood before Herod and Herod is in Jerusalem. Pilate says, well, let's send him over to Herod because he's technically from Herod's district. So Herod, the Bible teaches, is a tetrarch. The word tetrarch means a leader of a fourth. And so after Herod the Great died, he bequeathed his, uh, his leadership into four sections. And Herod Antipas was given Galilee in Perea. Perea is on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan, on the uh, eastern side of the Jordan River, what would be current day Jordan. Initially, that was part of Israel. And uh, through a bunch of different processes, uh, they lost uh, the land that now is all part of uh, Jordan today. And so Jesus is actually in the area known as Perea when this issue comes up. 
And so just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, to Jesus, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and on the third day I'll reach my goal. And so the Pharisees said, hey, look, your, your life is threatened. Did the Pharisees care about Jesus? Not at all. Um, but remember, their headquarters was in Judea, primarily in Jerusalem. And so if they could get Jesus back into Judea, they could keep him under their thumb and watch him closely. So their motives are not out of care and love for Jesus. They, they just want to be able to uh, watch over this guy. Now, remember, Herod Antipas was originally married to a lady by the name of Phasaelus. And uh, her daddy is actually mentioned in, in 2 Corinthians 11, King Eridus. Um, he ended up seducing the wife of his half-brother, Herod Philip, and he married her. And, of course, um, because he marries his, um, brother, his half-brother's wife, Herodias, John the Baptist spoke truth to him and said, look, what you're doing is evil. Now, somebody might say, well, that's disrespectful to call a leader evil. And of course, if you remember, it resulted in, in John's head uh, on that one occasion when uh, Herodias's daughter is doing this dance of sorts, and Herod is so pleased. He said, look, whatever you want up to half my kingdom. And the mom says to her, ask for John the Baptist's head. And the daughter, who's obviously deeply entrenched in evil, takes it a step further. I want his head, and I want it on a platter. The mother didn't give that instructions, but she wanted it on a platter. The mom just execute the guy, and a common means of execution was to cut off the head, but the daughter wanted to display the head. I mean, just thoroughly evil. So here's this guy, Herod Antipas, and he's an Idumean. He's what we might call somewhat of a fake Jew. And so why is he in Jerusalem during the time when Jesus is going to be crucified? Because as a fake Jew, he's there to celebrate Passover. So he's out of his district, but it's convenient for Pilate because he can basically send him next door and say, hey, let's, let's, let's talk to him. And so on this day, again, he, this is part of his Perean ministry that's only recorded in in Luke's gospel, but he's in that district called Perea that Herod Antipas is ruling over, and he says, go tell that fox. Now, why does he call him a fox? Well, number one, uh, the fox was considered an unclean animal. It was forbidden. God gave clear definition as to what you could eat or what you couldn't eat because under the Old Testament, God distinguishes people based on, among other things, dietary laws. And so something that split the hoof and chewed the cud was considered clean. Foxes didn't fit into that, not to mention further, whatever walks on its paws uh, is considered unclean to you. That's the fox. And so you couldn't eat a fox. And so not only was it unclean in terms of meat, but it's somewhat of a shot. It's a form of holy sarcasm in two realms. One, he's calling Herod unclean even though he was a professing, quote-unquote, practicing Jew. Um, but in addition, remember, there's different kinds of fox. Walter, have you ever seen a fox in Buford? Um, I don't believe I have, Pastor Carl. So they're here. 
Yeah. They are here. In fact, the fox that we have here are typically red fox, not exclusively. Okay. But we have red fox here, and that's the uh, sister fox to what they have in Israel. So different foxes are a little bit different. But, you know, you might see raccoons. You've seen raccoons, right? Of course. Yeah. Of course. And, and more often than not, you see them in the dusk and in the evening than you do during the day. Uh, it's not that they can't come out during the day. Well, the fox does its hunting under the cover of darkness. And so by calling him a fox, not only was he calling him an unclean, but he was designating him to the realm of darkness. And really, that's the realm in which this man lived. And so basically, Jesus is calling him a sinner. Was that unloving? No, that was the most loving thing that Jesus could do, to speak truth into his life. I mean, was it right for Moses to speak truth to Pharaoh and identify his sin? Of course it was right. Was it right for Nathan to speak to King David, the king of Israel, and confront him with sin? Of course it was right. Was it right for the prophet Elijah to confront King Ahab with his sin? Of course it was right. How about Eleazar before Jehoshaphat? Of course. Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar? Yes. John the Baptist before Herod? Yes. Jesus before Herod Antipas. By calling him that fox, he was calling him a sinner. Now, if you want to call that disrespect, you can, but you're not representing Scripture well. He is dealing with him in truth. He wants him to see that in the eyes of this one whom he's not convinced is the Son of God, but he knows there's something unique. In fact, uh, he, he was kind of thrilled that he came his way because he had heard about all these miracles that Jesus had done. In fact, he thought maybe John the Baptist had come back to life on one occasion. And so he was a fox. He was sly. He was cunning. He worked in the a realm of darkness. He was unclean, spiritually speaking. That was not disrespectful. That was the most respectful thing in the world that he could have said. So I hope, again, your question is not questioning uh, the Lord Jesus because everything he did was correct, and it's right for us to be salt and light. Is it wrong for me to say that the president of the United States is evil for uh, advocating the mutilation of little children in this whole process of... uh, changing your gender. No, that is, that's child abuse. Jesus would say it would be better for a millstone, and it's actually a millstone that was not used by a, a woman in a home to, you know, grind her flour, but it's the term that's used to describe what a donkey would turn. It'd be better to have a large millstone hung around your neck and be drowned in the deepest sea than to hurt one of these little children. And that's what our president is doing. That's evil when he advocates, too, the abortion holocaust that is unfolding in our nation and our vice president. That's not evil. That's not disrespectful. Now, I still respect the office of president, but with that said, what these people are doing are evil, and if Christians don't speak out against it, evil has more and more freedom, and you're doing those people a disservice. And so you've got these preachers who come and Pat President Biden on the back. And, you know, the Pope of Rome should have confronted him and said, you are doing evil beyond evil. You are excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. But he didn't do that, did he? He just cowed out to him, and they had a good old time together, and he didn't confront evil like he should have. Though I have to 
say that there's a few cardinals in the United States. I don't know if they're born again, but they at least understand the difference between good and evil. And one in California said to Nancy Pelosi, you can't take communion. Good for him. Good for him. You know, you can't be an abortionist and kill little babies and at the same time take communion. Was that disrespectful? No, that's dealing in truth. And that's what we're supposed to do, and that's what Jesus did. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for the Bible line today. Our next question comes from William out of Walterboro, South Carolina. He writes, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, what do the seven spirits represent? Uh, it's a picture of what it, the description there is a picture of... Um, the Holy Spirit of God. You, what you find here is a, a picture of the triune God. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Uh, who's that in reference to? Well, you know that. That's in reference to the Messiah. That's in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, a very, very important verse. And then it says, the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And so if you study that carefully, and if you go and listen to my sermon on Revelation 1-4, there are seven designations given here of the Spirit of God. And so this is a representation of seven ministries, we might say, seven major emphases and functions that God the Holy Spirit is going to perform through the Messiah when he's here on the earth. So again, go to searchthescriptures.org at the App Store, download the Search the Scriptures app. I did 72 hours of preaching on the book of Revelation. Uh, listen to the sermon that's covered uh, under that verse, Revelation 1-4, where I walk you through this very, very carefully and go through other scripture. It's an armchair question. It's a good question, um, but that's the short answer. Go listen to the long answer. Let's go to the next caller. I think he's waiting on the line. All right, yes, sir, Pastor Carl. We have John Wade Weatherford from Ridgeland. Good morning, John Wade. You are live with Pastor Carl. Good morning, Pastor Carl and Walter. I have a uh, friend of mine at work whose daughter is going to the University of Alabama this year, and they had a question about Highlands uh, Church in Alabama, the senior pastor Chris Hodges, and I don't really know much about him. I did a Google search and found that he had kind of started this ARC Association of Related Churches, and there were some scandals on a Google search. So I was just wanting to know if you were familiar with them. There was an overseer for that that Highlands Church um, that's a South Carolina pastor from Seacoast. And I was just trying to give my, my, my friends some advice, and I just didn't really know a lot about this church or organization. Yeah, so I would say this. It is uh, rooted in a movement that uh, Seacoast Church actually started in Charleston. Do I think Seacoast Church is a healthy church? No, not at all. Um, I don't think it's a healthy church at all. There's all kinds of biblical compromise. If you go to uh, Seacoast's uh, website, you'll see they have women pastors. Um, I, I, I was invited in the early years to a, a, a special, it was by invitation only, and I knew very little about Seacoast at that time, uh, by invitation only to a meeting up there, and man, I was just like disheartened. 
I thought this is what Charleston is getting. And they have several branches, at least they did as of uh, before COVID. I, I think they had to shut down some of those campuses. But it's not a healthy movement. It's egalitarian at its root. And by egalitarianism, for some of our listeners, uh, there's two realms of theology. And again, there's, there's challenges with definitions because sometimes a person can take the biblical term and redefine it, like the second coming or the bottle or the resurrection of Jesus, and they mean different things by it. But biblically, egalitarianism versus complementarian. Egalitarianism teaches that men and women are equal, and indeed they are. Complementarianism says men and women are equal, but they don't have the same roles. Their roles complement one another. And so uh, Secos is egalitarian, as is this whole movement of churches. And so they're going to deny basic um, biblical roles that should be affirmed. And that's not going to be healthy for this man's daughter. He's going to, she's going to witness women in leadership who should be home with their children, but instead they have them in daycare. And again, you know, they're going to write off some of these passages as simply um, culturally restricted but not uh, eternal in their nature in terms of their application, and they come up with distorted meanings. And so what I would suggest if this is already an issue, because she's no doubt watching women in the church take major leadership roles. Should women have major leadership roles in the church? Yes, absolutely. Just not as elders or pastors and deacons, because those two realms are restricted to the realm of men. And so when Paul said a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man, that's in the context of leadership in the church, of pastors in the church. A woman cannot stand up and preach on a Sunday morning. If you're there on the right Sunday at Seacoast, you might get to hear one of those women preach. And so some of these young ladies say, oh, look at her. I'd like to be like her. So they go out and they get married. And, you know, Beth Moore traveled the country speaking and doing Bible studies and, yes, exercising authority over men. And she would go to churches like First Baptist of Houston and say, well, I'm here today under the authority of my pastor. This was back when it was a bigger issue. And she would give those qualifications. No need any longer to give those qualifications because now she's totally rejected the Southern Baptist Convention. And... Um, Listen, no pastor has authority to give a woman authority that God expressly forbids. And when you mix roles, you do harm to the family. And so when a woman becomes a career mother, she's going to ultimately forsake her role as a mother in the home. And if you want your kids to turn out like Beth Moore's, do what she does, and you'll get the same product. You'll get the same thing. I promise you, you don't want your children to turn out like hers, but that is the fruit of disobedience. And so, no, it's not a healthy church. I would flee from it. I would look for another one. Um, Pastor Ed will often help people in our church when they move to another city, and they'll say, well, purviewing, because you see, you can go to a church and you can say, well, they believe in the doctrine of the Trinity and salvation by grace, but Again, you know, there's a, there's a Presbyterian church in town where their doctrinal statement looks pretty good, but they do gay marriages. So you have to get beneath the veneer and, and look into the finer details. And this whole movement 
is dangerous and it's not biblical, and I would flee from it. And I'd look for another church. Pastor Ed might be able to help that family. Let's go to the next question. Appreciate it. All right, our next question comes from Faye out of Georgia. She has a daughter with the following question. Why aren't the Chinese and the Mayans mentioned in the Bible? Well, um, let me just say they are. And what you have to do is they're not called Chinese. They're not called Mayans. But if you go to uh, Genesis chapter 10, and I have a whole sermon on that. And some people, when I came to Genesis 10, they thought, why is he going to teach Genesis 10? There's just all these names and different people. Well, Moses writes in a style that you'll see mimicked throughout the Old Testament. I'll describe a situation. And then what will follow is, how did they get to that situation? So how did you get all these nations? And so you can take all the nations of the world, and you can trace them to Genesis 10. And you will find the Chinese and the Mayans in there. And not by that name any more than you'd find the Russians there by name or the Europeans by name. But when you look at those various peoples, they end up migrating. And it appears also that there was a time in human history when God even divided the continents. Remember, in Genesis 10, you have the nations. In Genesis 11, you have the explanation for the disobedience of the nations. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, they weren't filling the earth. They were disobeying the Lord. And so... While it says now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly and fire them, in other words. And they'd use brick for stone and tar for murder, mortar and let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach up into heaven. And they're arrogantly disobeying the Lord. And so... Yahweh said, behold, they are one people, and they have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose will be impossible for them. Come, let us. Here's a reference again to the Trinity, like in the opening chapter, let us make man in our image. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Thank God for that. Had we had one language, the propensity for evil would have been much greater much earlier. Um, and so God had already destroyed the world once at this point, and now the people are rebelling against God, and so God brings Babel. Uh, it's kind of funny to me that there is a language program called Babel. The Hebrew word means confusion. God confused them, and that forced them to marry within language groups of people they could understand. And that's why we have the various um, peoples or nations of the world. Technically, there's one human race. There's only one race, but there's a multiplicity of nations within that race. And so the Chinese eyes may go a certain way, and the Filipinos' eyes may go a different way, and a Ukrainian looks a little bit different from a Russian. And um, some people have more melatonin in their skin and produces a darker color than other people. And... And so you have these various nations that are spread across the world. And so God did that. And at some point it appears, too, from the account that he divided the continents. And so when you look at the continents, they almost look like a big puzzle. And, um, but God dealt with their disobedience and uh, spread them accordingly. So they're in there, just not by that name. 
And so it's a it's a fair question. Let's go to the next one. And and again, I would direct this person. I did sixty two messages on the book of Genesis, if I remember correctly. Download the phone app, go to the app store, type in search the scriptures, and um there's a phone app and start listening to the messages on Genesis ten and eleven. It's gonna answer a lot of questions. So there's um um, about three hours of preaching there on those uh, on that section of scripture, and so I just gave you a four or five minute answer. But I would go there. All right, let's go to the next question. Right. The next one, Pastor Carl's from Dawson, out of Beaufort, South Carolina. He writes, "I was wondering what to say to someone who thinks that people can have a second chance after the rapture." Well, I would remind them of Second uh, Thessalonians chapter two where the Apostle Paul is dealing with what's going to unfold during that time frame called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day any more than the day of your youth was one single day, but that protracted period of time that has a dark and a bright side to it that mimics a biblical day. And so he says in regards to our the coming of the Lord and our gathering together to him, don't be you know knocked off you know your feet that, you know, by some letter that I supposedly wrote that we're already in the day of the Lord. No, you can't be in the day of the Lord. Why? Because the great falling away that's going to happen during the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet, but it will happen in that seven-year period. And the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, isn't on the scene, the one who's going to go into the temple of God and call himself God and so forth. And and then he goes on to say, for that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. And Revelation affirms that. And he'll bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So there are people today who, in clarity and in power, and only God can measure that, but they have heard the truth in a way that they could be saved, but because their love for evil, for this reason, because they didn't respond, God will descend upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they may be judged with those who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So I would just say that, look, a person doesn't draw himself to the Lord. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. God initiates with you. He gives you truth. You can't put him off forever because the more you put him off, the more your heart becomes hard. And what we can see today is Jesus taught in John 12, as the writer of the Hebrews taught in Hebrews 4, it's going to happen in a mass way during the tribulation period. Millions and millions are saved during the tribulation period through the preaching of 144,000 Jews. But many will, because of their rejection of the truth at this time, will believe a lie, and it will be a judgment of God. Anyway, we're out of time. Good question. Listen to my message on 2 Thessalonians 2. It's in this series that we are doing um, on God's prophetic schedule. God bless you. Have a great day as you walk with Christ. (laughs) 